We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Bill Sharp, who is a former Taiwan fellow at Academia Sinica here in Taiwan, and who's also just wrapped up a stint at Fudan University in Shanghai. Hello. <laughs> and also Klaus Badenhagen, who writes for German language media here in Taiwan. Always great to be here. Right, tonight we discuss a women's group and its woes with the government, pollution sources, a proposal to make English Taiwan's second official language, and a whole heap of cross-strait information and news. But we'll begin with something that might sound mundane, but quickly became fodder for headline news, that being the election of a new National Taiwan University president. Now, former National Development Council Minister Guan Zhongmin was elected to head Taiwan's most prestigious university, in a January 5th election. Guan announced his lofty plans to internationalise the university and establish an international campus in the days following his election as he quickly sought to hit his new post running. However, it all turned to tears shortly thereafter following calls by the DPP demanding that the university defer Guan's appointment amid allegations of plagiarism and questions over conflict of interest. Now, the selection committee upheld its selection of Guan as president of the university this Wednesday Wednesday, with Selection Committee Governor Chen Wei-Zhou saying the legitimacy of Guan's selection was beyond all doubt. The Education Ministry, meanwhile, has said that it wants all allegations against the university's president-elect to be cleared up before it okays the posting. So, mundane Klaus turning to fodder quite quickly. Plagiarism and conflict of interest. Well, this is not exactly the first time that plagiarism plays such a big role in, in Taiwanese debate. Um, for example, if we think back, two government ministers, at least two government ministers, had to step down just a few years ago. In 2013, the National Minister of Defense, and in 2014, the Minister for Education, also because of plagiarism charges. So it seems like people in academia and politics, they all seem to be quite sensitive to this now. And maybe if there's someone stepping up to a position and they don't like this person, maybe they try to find some mud to sling against them and then see if it sticks or not. Mm. Right, of course, you're in academia, Bill. I mean, plagiarism. Obviously, the, the, the selection committee has come out and said that Guan didn't plagiarize anybody. But still, is there, there must be a stigma if you're in education and academia when it comes to even the slightest hint of plagiarism. Obviously, it's a very serious charge, especially in Western universities. And, um, and I think it's increasingly becoming the case uh, in Taiwan where I, th I, th I think plagiarism is looked upon fairly seriously. In China, I'm not so sure about that. I think there's still a lot going on there. Uh, but it's a serious charge. It really under, undermines uh, one's credibility as a scholar. Right, and of course, Guan has also faced charges of conflict of interest, that being due to the fact that he is actually an independent member of the board of directors of Taiwan Mobile. And anyone in Taiwan that has a mobile phone will know them. Now, it just so happens that Taiwan Mobile Vice Chairman Richard Tsai is also a member of the National Taiwan University Selection Committee. Well, if they don't have any rules against this in place, then they should maybe change that. But um, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Apparently, they, they said that Guan should have told the committee that he was on the board of Taiwan Mobile. But then one could argue that Richard Tsai maybe should have put his hand up and said, hey, he's a mate of mine, I work with him. 
<laughs> you know, I, I think I, I just uh, recalled another situation uh, that impacts academia in Taiwan, and that is the former president of Academia Seneca was accused of insider trading, and he had to step down because of that. Uh, president Ma, who was president at the time, was uh, quite unhappy about that, obviously, and uh, very embarrassed. And that was when he bought shares off the company because of his daughter. Right, like right, exactly, exactly. Academia Sinica is very much into, uh, has a, holds as its preeminent goal the development of some sort of um, cure for cancer. And um, there's a lot of money put into Academia Sinica because of that. And there was a company on the side that was supposed to... Uh, deal with the production of this this um, anti-cancer drug, if produced. And the former president of uh, Academia Sinica had shares in that company, uh, in his daughter's name, of course, uh, to sort of give himself some cover. But I, I think everybody saw through that, and he had to, he had to step down. So I guess the moral of that story is, if you're going to be given a government posting, make sure you haven't copied anyone or there's no conflict of interest. Anyway, talking of conflict of interest, we're going to move on but stay with that issue as the ill-gotten party Assets Settlement Committee this week said that there was evidence showing that the National Women's League is an affiliate organisation of the Guomindang and as such its assets will be frozen pending further investigation. Now that statement of course comes after the Assets Settlement Committee has been investigating the Women's League for several months now. But also prior to that statement being made, the actual Women's League itself this week voted against signing an administrative contract with the government and to submit to public oversight. Now that administrative contact would have meant that the Women's League would have had to donate 90% of its assets to the state. Now according to committee chairman Lin Feng Jung all the League's assets will be considered ill-gotten simply on the grounds that the KMT controls its personnel management, its finances and its business operations. Now the Women's League is now required to file a debt declaration of its assets with the settlement committee within the next four months and if it fails to do so the league will then face a fine up to five million nt have all its assets completely frozen and also be banned from disposing of any of its property prior to gaining approval to do so from the settlement committee now newly appointed women's league chairwoman joanna lie says the organization will challenge the government's efforts to seize its assets in court now she also warned this week after the women's league voted to dismiss court for government oversight and she basically turned around and said well the in, in the reaction from the government to that vote within the women's league will be intense and she also predicted that the investigation into funding for the women's league will be reopened so klaus the women's league in hot water predictable though i mean they, we could have seen this several months ago I think. <laughs> well uh, where do we where do we want to start this i mean can we go back to 1950 when the league was actually set up because this is not just some charitable organization that's now come under government scrutiny. I mean, this was at a time when the KMT had just retreated to Taiwan and they were making sure to control all aspects of society, either directly or indirectly, which means, for example, also labor unions and farmers associations and all that. And this organization was set up to take care of the families of military veterans, and it was headed by the wife of Chiang Kai-shek for decades. Um, now, she, at the same time, she was also heading the women's chapter of the Guomindang Party. And um, now, fast forward, end of martial law, some decades have passed since then. This organization is still around. Um, the chairwomen are also regularly former KMT legislators. And 
um, under some scrutiny, it uh, just came out that this organization is sitting on assets worth about 1.3 billion US dollars. So that's nothing that a normal uh, charitable organization should have, this kind of money. How did they get that? Well, it's... Um, Questionable. It's questionable. It's the issue of the day. Well, the, the suspicion that it is maybe somehow connected to it being so closely connected to the party state, I think, is pretty valid. So then the um, committee, the uh, Ill-Gotten Party Asset um, Investigation Committee, they actually offered them a face-saving way out. They said, we are not going to submit you to the whole scrutiny. Um, if you agree for some kind of compromise, this compromise was they give up 90% of their assets, but they um, would fuse with some other foundations that they would have set up and they would be able to continue operating rather independently. I think the government wanted to make sure to have like one third of the board seats in the future. But still, it was a compromise, which was on the table for months. And they first, they didn't want to do it, then their board was axed, then the new chairwoman wanted to do it, then another one had this vote where they really closely decided, no, we don't want to do it, so now they have to face the consequences because the compromise is off the table now. And of course, Bill, this all comes down to divesting the KMT of its interests and its hands allegedly in government and non-government organizations. Long overdue. Yeah. I, I think it's only right that they go about investigating the KMT assets and um, divesting them of, of the ones that they should not have. I mean, obviously, this has been a long-standing issue. It's only now that um, there's any kind of real power to be able to deal with the question. But, of course, some have argued that this could come and bite the DPP in the backside, so to speak. When the DPP are out of power, the KMT could simply come in and say, well, it's payback time. I think this is an unfortunate aspect of uh, Taiwan politics. There is that notion of payback. I mean, you certainly see it. I mean, I think maybe it's due to the fact that Taiwan is still a fairly immature democracy and has a lot of um, development and uh, maturation to, to, to undergo. Uh, I think it all de deals to sort of gets into the broader question of uh, Taiwan politics is sort of based on a zero sum notion. You know, there's there's seems to be little room for compromise on lots of issues. And the uh, ill-gotten party asset committee is quite aware that they are operating on a tight time frame here. They know that come 2020 parliamentary elections, presidential elections, they may well be abolished after that. So they try to get as much accomplished as possible until now, which was why they were willing in the first place to negotiate a compromise instead of wasting all the time and manpower on this one case, because they also have other organizations to investigate. And um, in Germany, for example, after East Germany, after the East German system collapsed, there was also a pretty similar organization that was actually the one this was modeled after in place to investigate the former East German Socialist Party assets. Mm -hmm. And this was basically operating from 1990 to 2016, uh, to 2006, 1990 to 2006. So in Taiwan, because the situation is different, um, there was not a clean break with the old system, so maybe they don't have that much time. Mm. Obviously, not. I can't see this, this committee, the ill-gotten assets settlement committee, being around for that long. Though. Well, I think, I think mm. if, if it's around for that long, questions should be seriously asked about what everyone's doing. Yeah, and the more time passes, the more people who did who were involved in that will no longer be around. Um, the whole world will have changed a lot. So I think 10, 15 years from now, 
um, yeah, it, it's it's too late to still do any investigating there. What should they do if this women's league is found to have been working closely with the Guomindang and getting money illegally, state what is considered now to be state money? What should happen to the women's league and the people that used to run it? I think they should be prosecuted in accordance with the law. I'm not sure that's on the table. I mean, what's definitely possible is that the assets will be confiscated and um, for the state, for, mm-hmm. basically. And the organization might be disbanded or broken up. Mm. I'm not sure if there's actually personal responsibility for any wrongdoing, not in what the ill-gotten party asset committee is investigating. Maybe if they find some some corruption or um, some something else on the way, that will be investigated too, but that's not their prime purpose. Mm. Right, and we'll move on now to our favourite topic, Klaus, that being air pollution, because Klaus is quite into air pollution, because he complains about it a lot. Air pollution is into me, that's the problem. Yes, it's into all of us, really. (laughs) Anyway, this week it was once again the topic of conversation here, after the Environmental Protection Administration announced plans to tax particulate matter and nitrogen oxide emissions in a bid to reduce factory pollution. Now, the new policy is set to begin in July and will mainly affect electricity suppliers and steel smelters. Now, under the policy, factories that emit less than one tonne of particulate matter will have to pay 450 NT per season, while those that emit between one and ten tonnes per season will pay between 32 and 46 NT per kilogram of emissions. Now, factories that emit more than ten tonnes per season will have to pay between 38 and 55 NT per kilogram. Now, data from the government shows that the so-called stationary pollution sources produce about 40,500 two tonnes of particulate matter per year and the government says the new policy is likely to cut that down by some 9,000 tonnes per year. Now the EPA is estimating that it will collect some 1.37 billion NT annually for particulate matter emissions and 177 million NT for oxide emissions. Now the money will be allocated to the central and local governments to help fight well air pollution. So do you think Klaus this is going to stop factories from spewing their vomit and particulate crap into the air. <laughs> my, my head is still spinning from these large numbers. I mean, uh, first of all, if you want big corporations, uh, industrial factories to change anything, you need to grab them where it hurts, and that is by having them pay for what they shouldn't be doing. It's kind of hard for me to say now off the cuff if these um, numbers are really adding up to anything substantial or if that's just something these corporations will write off as an additional expense. And also, um, are they being offered a way to change their uh, production methods? Are there ways to install filters or new um, new devices to to um, lower their output of particulate matter and all that? I'm not quite sure. I think we will have to see how this plays out. Okay, Klaus, do you think this is going to stop factories? Do you think stop factories will look at ways to stop air pollution rather than paying the fine? Well, it depends on if the fines are high enough, if they if they hurt enough, basically. And I'm sure we'll be coming back here shortly because, of course, air pollution is not going away. (laughs) Of course, Bill won't be here. He'll be back in Hawaii. So there you go. We'll give you a wave when we can't see you. Oh, okay. That sounds good. That sounds good. (laughs) Anyway, finally, in the first half of this week's show, Premier William Lai this week said that he's seeking to have English designated as Taiwan's second official language. Now, according to Education Minister Pan Wen Jong, the move is aimed at ensuring the island's younger generation grow up with a good command of the English language that, in his words, will give them more opportunities. Now, Pan also said this week that he envisions a future where Taiwanese children grow up in a multilingual environment and can use English as a tool 
call for entry in the global arena. So English is a second official language, Klaus. Of course, you are from Germany, so I take it you'd like to see German as the official language. Oh my, oh God, no. <laughs> I mean, this this must be Mr. Lai's comedic performance of the week. I mean, there's no way in hell that English is ever going to be an official language in Taiwan. Because what does official language mean? It's that everyone has the right to do everything using just English. Um, do your taxes, communicate with the government offices. Um, if it's an official language, it, it needs to be sure that you can do everything in English in this country. And there's no way that's going to happen in the next, I don't know, 50 years. Maybe I won't be around after that anymore. <laughs> But of course, the issue here with English as a second language is what do you make the first language? Well, we have a Mandarin <laughs> or, or, or Taiwanese. Taiwanese. Yeah. <laughs> we have one national language. It's called Guoyu, and that is Mandarin. So the question is, do, do you want to change that? It's not, what do we make? We already have one. So, Bill, I mean, do you think Taiwan will ever make English the second language, or do you think it's just a bit of a pipe dream? I, I think it's a bit of a pipe dream. I think it was a pipe dream when he was mayor of Tainan, too. And uh, I, 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 I talked to some of his assistants, and they were very wary about the uh, this idea and really questioned the feasibility of it. But it's certainly in the mayor's mindset. Uh, well, now the premier's mindset. Yeah. I, my question is, what would you make this first language, and what would you make the third language? And where does, oh, well, where does, Hacker, where does well, Hacker go? I, and, and then there's the Aboriginal languages too. <laughs> I, so I guess they all have equal status. As far as I see, they just strengthened the uh, like Taiwanese, Hakka, Aboriginal languages in school. I think they just um, increased the, the number of lessons uh, students have to take in that. So this is really contradictory to that. Or they have more language lessons now, where they have to learn English as well. Yeah, because they have so much free time already, so let them study more. Right? Well, what, what's interesting though is, um, I, I remember reading some articles about this, is the number of hours devoted to the study of classical Chinese in uh, high school and junior high school curriculums has been reduced. So maybe they're hoping to take that time and devote it to more English instruction or aboriginal you know, lessons or, or, or whatever. There was some talk about that, but there was some controversy over whether students should be allowed to pick what they want to study or the schools give them what they want to study. Mm -hmm. Of course, it'd be better if they could pick what they wanted to study. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will write back here on Taiwan This Week after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to cover cross-strait issues in the second half of the show, as Bill, of course, has just returned from a stint in Shanghai. But let's begin with this week's cross-strait news, and the blame game over China's controversial new flight routes, and Taiwan's denying approval for extra cross-strait flights by two Chinese <coughs> airlines over the Lunar New Year holiday period. Now, the Tsai administration once again is urging Beijing to hold talks on the new flight routes. Xiamen Air and China Eastern Airlines both cancelled their requests for additional Lunar New Year flights this week, while China's Taiwan Affairs Office said that Taiwan has linked the two totally irrelevant issues together. And the Chinese officials went on to say that the island has gone to the length of taking residents and business people from Taiwan hostage in retaliation against the mainland airlines. And if all that wasn't enough to muddy the waters, Sweden's foreign minister this week called on Beijing to put aviation safety ahead of cross-strait political issues and she said that both sides should hold talks on the opening of the M503 flight route by Beijing. So the flight route, Klaus, 
and people can't come home, of course, for the Lunar New Year holiday, or so they're saying. 50,000, depending which article you read, between 50 and 30,000 people might not get home this Lunar New Year. Well, I remember a few weeks ago on this excellent show, you had Russ Feingold here, and he um, predicted exactly that, that this was a step that would hurt the Taiwanese government more than help it to make its case. Um, when I, back then, when I listened to it, I did not um, agree with him because it could have been spun another way, but the way it turns out, yeah, he was right. And um, there's a lot of fallback now, and um, China isn't exactly being painted as the bad guy in right. the public I mean, do, sphere. Do you think the Taiwan business people and business owners and Taiwan people that work in China will be angry about this? Or do you think they'll just simply get back other ways? Of course, the, the Straits Exchange Foundation this week said that there are, are regularly scheduled flights and also additional flights that have already previously been laid on do have seats available. Well, if they originally booked a seat and then it will turn out they will not be able to come here, of course, they will be angry. And I think some organization of Taishang has already threatened to um, make sure the DPP will, well, not not stay in power, but um, they were never the DPP's core constituency to begin with. So I'd, I'm not sure about the political consequences here, but it just doesn't look so good. I, I'm not sure, quite sure what to think about this. In, in one way, you know, um, China has pushed Taiwan around a lot in the last, well, ever since Tsai Ing-wen became president. And this is an attempt by uh, Taiwan to sort of stand up and fight back. Now, maybe it will boomerang on them. But at least it's some attempt to push back on China, and I think that's has sadly been missing. Some people feel that um, Tsai Ing-wen is uh, Ing has been a little too weak and a little bit too uh, willing to look the other way on certain forms of mainland pressure, and have sort of wanted this kind of uh, pushback. How it turns out, I think that probably remains to be seen. Right. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week said that it was aware of talks between the Vatican and China, which are amid, they, of course, these, that comment, rather, comes amid reports that the Holy See has been making concessions to Beijing in regards to the appointment of bishops. Now, that agreement is seen as a significant breakthrough between the two sides and has led to concern here in Taiwan that the Vatican could sever official ties with the island in favour of Beijing. Now, according to the head of the Foreign Office's Department of European Affairs, her office Office is closely monitoring developments between the Vatican and Beijing. However, the official is refusing to say whether the concessions have been agreed on or even whether the Vatican is leaning towards normalizing ties with China. I, you know, I think this comes at a, a very unique time, or uh, perhaps unique is not the right word, an unusual time, because just as the, there's this, this growing feeling or chatter about the uh, Vatican establishing relations with China, China is cracking down on Christian institutions in China, um, making them... Um, uh, uh, exercising greater control over them than was in the past. And even some churches that were considered to be too big uh, have been um, <clears throat> ordered to uh, scale down the size of their church. And people who have pictures of Christ in their house have been told, you have to replace those pictures with pictures of Xi Jinping. So I just wonder how... Um, um, what, what kind of environment is the Vatican really um, uh, treading in at the, at the present time? Does it really understand what's going on? What does it really expect to get out of China? I mean, China is going, always going to keep the ultimate control of power, and they're going to closely control whatever the church does. What do they hope to accomplish? That's what I wonder. 
That was one of the comments, actually, by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week when it said, even if there is a breakthrough regarding the appointment of the bishops, because, of course, Beijing wants to put its own bishops in there, while the Vatican, of course, being the Vatican, does appoint bishops all over the world. And basically the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here said this week that there's not sure if there's going to be a breakthrough due to the fact that there's huge differences between Beijing and the Vatican, especially concerning religious freedoms. I, and I think you see, I, I, you know, I, I, um, I think about um, in Tibet, for example, there used to be a very flourishing Buddhist culture in Tibet, and still Buddhism has very deep roots in, in Tibet. But if you look at the past, there were, I believe it's the number is like 500 monasteries. Since China has tightened its control of Tibet, the number of monasteries have been greatly reduced, and the number of monks in each uh, monastery has also been greatly reduced, and they all come under very tight government control. And if you want to be promoted to a higher level of monk, then you need to have the state's uh, uh, approval. So I just wonder um, how um, how this is really going to pan out for the for the for the Vatican. I, I wonder if the Vatican is maybe being a little bit too starry eyed about this. Yeah, Klaus, I mean, do you think that if Taiwan lost the Vatican as a diplomatic ally, of course, it's the only one it has in Europe, do you think this would make a difference? What type of difference would it make? It would have a huge symbolic impact. I'm not so sure about the practical advantages of having the Vatican as a diplomatic ally because they cannot, um, I think they don't take part in the UN General Assembly, for example, so they don't speak up for Taiwan on that stage. So apart from being able to say, here, we have one diplomatic ally in Europe, mm. um, Bill, do you know what's the actual advantage of having them on your side? I, I think, as you suggested, it's symbolic. Uh, it, it's symbolic. Um, um, and it does give them an office in Europe. It gives them an office in Europe. They have an embassy in Europe. Right. Right. I, 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 I think, um, I, I think the, the impact is symbolic. Uh, I also, I used to think that the uh, Vatican perhaps could... Um, Use its influence in other Catholic countries to Taiwan's advantage, but I, I, that's that's really not an accurate. That's a bit minimal and been inaccurate and quite minimal, really, when you think about it right, nowadays. Right, I mean, right. of course, the Catholic Church is a huge global organization, run centralized by the Vatican. So, um, I mean, they if they want to, they can have a huge outreach. Um, globally, but I'm not sure. Are they using it in any way to further Taiwan's interests? I don't think that's the case. Actually, it's it's perhaps a bit sarcastic, but if you look at the structure of the Vatican and look at the structure of the Chinese Communist Party and the way they do things, there's a lot of similarities. There's a whole lot of similarities. Uh, You know, when it comes to, like, you know, uh, in, in the party, the institutions within the party that deal with, like, propaganda and theory and that kind of thing is very similar to the What's it called in the Vatican? The Doctrinal Council or something like that. The former pope was head of that, Pope Pope Benedict, the, the immediate former one. Uh, if you look at the way they select the the pope, it's all done in a very close circle, just the way they select the, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, Perhaps the party is is more advanced in some ways in the sense that if you're a chairman, after 10 years, you're supposed to step down. Now, we'll wait and see what Xi Jinping does. If you're a pope, you have to wait until you die. Well, the the last pope resigned, but that was kind of unusual. (laughs) 
anyway, that was the Cross Strait news for this week. But of course, Bill is here, so we're going to ask Bill. You've just been at the Fudan University in Shanghai, where you've been chatting with the people on the ground there from China. What are they saying about the issues of the day, especially? I mean, what are they seeing as Cross Strait ties? Are they seeing as them deteriorating? Are they oh, anti yeah. the DPP? <clears throat> are they uh, definitely? They see the uh, Cross Strait relations as deteriorating. Are they saying uh, when is uniformly held in contempt? Uh, and uh, they're very unhappy uh, with the DPP. They wish the DPP would go away, but they acknowledge the fact that the DPP is probably going to win the 2020 election. And uh, a few analysts that I talked to uh, feel that she will, pro- or the DPP at least, will win the 2024 election. They're very disappointed with the Kuomintang, uh, especially with Wu Dunyi, because they don't see him as a person they can count on to use. Uh, whatever influence the KMT might still have to to unify uh, Taiwan with the mainland, so they're very very um, they're, they're very they're very upset with the current situation. I, I believe um, some people I, I I talked to during my time there. I had an opportunity to speak to between eight and ten of um, China's Taiwan analysts, both in Shanghai and Beijing. Uh, we talked about a lot of things about, um, well, I remember one uh, analyst who was, who was very adamant that Taiwan's democracy is going to collapse, and Taiwan's democracy is going to collapse, and the New South policy is doomed to failure. Um, That's wishful thinking, or the fact that he's bred on propaganda? Well... As I later found out, he often cooperates with the Guotaiban, the Taiwan Affairs Office, which is a very uh, no-nonsense government organization that essentially is in charge of uh, Taiwan policy. Uh, And he also uh, periodically writes for the Global Times. So after I knew that, I could better understand where he was coming from. Uh, however, I should pass on that uh, every other Taiwan expert that I, uh, China Taiwan expert that I talked to, thought that his viewpoints were off the mark and somewhat ridiculous. And somewhat extreme. I and, say. Well, yes, extreme. Well, let me ask you this. These Chinese Taiwan experts, mm-hmm. do they regularly visit Taiwan at all? Yeah, they do. And, and actually, a lot of them have spent um, much of their career studying Taiwan affairs. And I think, uh, to be really fair about it, I think most of them are pretty objective given the bounds within which they work. Um, some will even say, you know, people in Taiwan don't really want to unify with us. And um, some will also say the equal Yangzhou, the one, one country, two systems idea is not going to work. The, the government, if they really want to unify with Taiwan, they need to change that. And I think that's true because even people in Taiwan that are interested or supportive of unification don't accept that concept. So that's something. interesting because if you listen to like what the top echelon in China is saying or the Global Times editorials, it always seems as if they are not aware that the government, no matter what party in Taiwan, is accountable to the will of the people. And if they stray too far from that, there will be consequences, like sunflower movements or DPP losing popularity and all that. It, it seems like they operate on the mindset that the Taiwanese government can operate the same way that the government in China would do. And if, if you have a bad party, then they will do bad things, and it's all their fault, but the public will come around and um, it will embrace China eventually. But you're saying that actually they are very well aware that that's... I I think that's true. You know, like, the typical man on the street in China, the Lao Bai Sing, 
they don't really care about Taiwan. I mean, they have too many other things they're worried about. And it's only people that are what you may call politically active or people in the government at the highest levels. They've got to be concerned about Taiwan because if they ever gave up on Taiwan, it, it, it would... It would it would be dire consequences for them, right? It would also be dire consequences for the party. So whether they like it or not, they're bound to Taiwan and the um, the unification of Taiwan. And I think this is probably particularly true with Xi Jinping because he's certainly a man who wants to go down in history. And Mao couldn't unify Taiwan. Deng Xiaoping couldn't unify Taiwan. He thinks maybe I'll be the one that unifies Taiwan, and certainly he—that would be a, his long-lasting mark on, on Chinese history. Um, you know, trying to persuade these guys, and I think some of them realize this, but others don't, or, or at least not willing to admit it. Is you know, Taiwan and China are different. They've evolved in different ways. They've developed in different ways. The different influences, different lifestyles, and especially younger people, um, they're not so. They don't have a very strong China connection. They realize, as some people would say, nine generations ago, their ancestors came from China. That was a long time ago. And, and they're interested in, in China in the sense of visiting it and, you know, being a tourist there. But they don't really accept the, the China model. Um, this one analyst I talked to also, you, we're talking about the we were talking about the Taishang a little bit earlier, the, um, you know, Taiwan businessman in, um, in China. He really thought that, you know, the Taishang are a very dependable force for unification. We can depend on those, and those guys will really be very helpful to us in unifying. I said, you know, I don't think that's true because the Taishang, they go where the, where the money is to be made. That's where the Taishang go. And you know that expression, the, the Taishang, um, you know, they, they don't have any mother country. Taishang mei you Right? And that's so true. Wherever the money is, that's where they go. So a lot of those people, even though there are how many, one million, at least one million people from Taiwan living in China, it doesn't mean that they buy um, China's pitch on politics. They're there to make money. I, I think a lot of them, their hearts are still very much with Taiwan. Um, so I, I think this particular person, and if, perhaps a few others, are pretty much off the mark on being able to count on the Taishan as a force for unification. What about students? Obviously, there's lots of Taiwan students now go to China because of China's trying to attract them. Cheaper education, better chance to go to university. Are the Chinese scholars you spoke to hoping that maybe these Taiwan students that study in China will bring back some of their love for China to Taiwan when they return? Well... I, I, you make me think of two things there. Um, let, let me let me bring up. The, you're talking about university students. Let me let me mention this first, and then I'll get to the heart of your question. Is I I talked to uh, oh, three or four Chinese students who had studied in Taiwan, and their academic exchange programs between mainland universities and Taiwan universities. And the ones I talked to, they they're very interesting. And I remember this one in particular. He said, you know. The difference between a university in China and a university in Taiwan is, in China, they teach you how to listen. In Taiwan, they teach you how to think. And he really liked the variety of teaching methods used in uh, Taiwanese universities, uh, small group discussions, and that kind of thing. And uh, he, was, he was pretty impressed, pretty impressed indeed. Now... Um, you're the second part of your question, or maybe it's the real part of the question, and I interjected, I don't know who thought. Um, 
you know, the Guotai Ban, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a long approach to answering this question, if you don't mind. When it comes to Taiwan policy in China, who makes it? Not the academic research institutes who are focused on Taiwan. They do basic research and uh, write reports that they pass on to the government or whoever might be interested. Um, the real policy-making arm is a small leadership group at the top of the Taiwan leadership, uh, China leadership ladder, as well as the Guotai Bond. This is where the policy is ultimately put together. Ultimately, it has to have the approval of the standing committee of the Politburo, Politburo Standing Committee. And actually, on the Politburo Standing Committee, there are only two people who are really interested in Taiwan. One is Xi Jinping, and the other is, now it's going to be Wang, Wang Yang. Before, it was Zhang Yusheng. Uh, other than that, people in the Polar Board Standing Committee are not particularly interested in Taiwan. They have all other kinds of interests. But the Guo Taiban, I have to give these guys credit. They really, they think every day, they think very hard about how, what kind of policy they can come up with, what kind of policy they can suggest to the leadership of China to unite um, Taiwan with the mainland. And I think of three policies right off the bat. If you remember the 2012 election uh, in Pindong County, there were a number of fishermen who had a lot of trouble selling their milk fish. So Guotai Ban focused in on that, and they came up with a policy making it quite easy for those folks to sell their milk fish in China. Now, I don't think the steel goes on anymore. I've been told that it doesn't. But it was quite successful, okay? Um, th those fishermen became quite... You know, quite appreciative of the Guotai Ban. If you look at some other policies uh, that they have, uh, and one in particular really gets to what you're asking, um, is throwing open the doors of China to Taiwanese, young Taiwanese, who are looking for jobs and looking for further educational opportunity. Now, will they take back a newly acquired love for China to Taiwan? I've met a few students from Taiwan who are studying in Chinese universities. And I don't really think that's going to happen. I don't really think that's going to happen. I think they probably appreciate the opportunity to study there, uh, to get a degree there. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be transform itself into this this deep love for China. Some people I talk to, Taiwanese I talk to, who lived in China for some time, they're very skeptical about certain things about China, but there was certain advantages for them to be there, so that's why they remain. So obviously we mentioned President Tsai Ing-wen and China's thoughts about her, but what about the Premier, William Lai, of course, who's quite well known, both here and in China, of course, for being a rather backing Taiwan independence. Very person. deep green. They're all very, very wary about him. Very, very upset. Uh, very, very upset about Lai Qingda. And I, I tried to calm them down and saying, look, let's face it, premiers in Taiwan don't last long. A year, a year and a half, and he's going to be gone. You know, and then when he's gone, he's going to disappear. So he's not going to be a factor in the 2020 election. They said, oh, but he wants to be vice president. I said, well, you know, vice president is not really all that important of a position in Taiwan. So I really want, I think you guys should calm down. Yeah. But, but that shows again that there's an understanding that politicians can just do what they want. If, it, if he's a deep green politician, he will have deep green policies. There's apparently not the understanding that he also has to adapt to like the public mood in his country, what his electorate actually wants or not. 
That, that, that's a very good point, and that's true. And that's true. They don't realize all their forces that will impinge upon him. They also don't realize that, uh, and to go a step further, you know, oh, Tsai Wen, she doesn't accept the 92 consensus. They say, yeah, and there's no way she like, she can ever accept it because if she accepts it, she's going to get so much pressure from her party that they're either going to leave the party and create their own party or they're going to try to get rid of her. So she's not going to accept the 92 consensus. She's she's a supporter of the status quo. She's um, She wants economic development. She said, but Taiwan's independence. I said, well, she's not going to declare independence. I said, well, Taiwan has is... How do they put it? Softly independent or something like that. And, you know, I suppose that's true. Uh, but, you know, um, really, they don't want to make trouble for you. They just want economic development. Um, and, and they have trouble. They have trouble accepting that. Um, they're very worried about Randy Shriver, who just got appointed to the uh, What's his exact title? Assistant Secretary of State for Asian Pacific Affairs in the Pentagon. He has a long history of being very pro-Taiwan. And uh, asked me, do you know him? What's he about? I said, yeah, I know him. And he said, uh, what's his mindset? He says, well, he's obviously very pro-Taiwan. And they're very upset about the travel, um, what's the exact name? Travel Authorization Act. And uh, also about the possibility of uh, aircraft carrier docking in Kaohsiung Harbor. I said, well, I don't think that's going to happen. And, you know, so what if you... um, High-level officers in uniform visit, you know, Taipei. I mean, there's so much interaction going on now already. I mean, you just don't see it. So what if it's a little bit more visible? I mean, the U.S. has defense commitments to Taiwan. It has to carry them out or else it, its credibility in Asia suffers. Yes, and I'm sure, of course, very interesting views there, Bill, about what the people in China are saying, but most of them seem to be swallowing the propaganda. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's true. I, I People in China... From the time they enter school, they're schooled to think of Taiwan as Taiwan province. Taiwan is ours. There's no other possibility. And in conversations with them, if you bring up Taiwan, it triggers what they've been taught in school perhaps all their life. Mm, Taiwan is ours. Taiwan should be ours. America should get out of the way. Something like that. Anyway, that's where we'll leave the show this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Bill Sharp. Thank you very much. It was great to be with you again. And Klaus Badenhagen. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.